Glad to be here with you all this morning. Um, Pastor Tony last week kicked off our uh, elder-led series, Journey Through James. Uh, my name's Paul. I serve as an elder here, and I'm glad to uh, bring to you this morning the second installment of this series. And so as we journey through James, it's going to be a good time. So one of my, um, one of my favorite nostalgic movies is from my childhood is The Goonies. I love that movie. Um, and I really love the scene where, where this, this group of kids, they're on a, on a treasure hunt and they're, they're going through this tunnel and they end up at the bottom of a well. And uh, there's one of, probably one of the, the greatest speeches ever delivered was, was during this scene. And it says, Chester Copperpot, don't you see? Don't you realize? He was a pro. He never made it this far. Look how far we've come. We have a chance. Don't you realize the next time you see sky, it will be over another town. The next time you take a test, it will be in some other school. Our parents, they want best stuff for us, but right now they have to do what's right for them because it's their time up there. Up there is their time, but down here, it's our time. It's our time down here. This great speech, <laughs> just fantastic. But so in this well, there's coins all over the floor and uh, they're, they're, the kids are in there and they start, they start gathering up all these coins and getting all excited. But someone says, no, 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 we can't do this. These are, these are somebody's wishes because they're in a well. But one, one of the boys, he holds up in coin. He says, well, yeah, well, this wish was mine and did it didn't come true. So I'm taking it back. Wise wishing. It seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? I mean, it's not that, you know, he could have done anything different uh, to make his wish come true. It's not like he could have, you know, altered how he did it so that the outcome would be more positive. Many would say that even wishing, it's not going to get you anywhere. You need to work harder. But when it comes to being wise, can we wish for it? Who is wise? What about them causes you to perceive them to be wise? The amount of education they have, the type of personality they possess, their, their oratory skills. What about how much they sound like you? Who is wise? You know, for much of my adult life, I have been dumbfounded by presidential election debates. And... Um, Maybe not so much the debates themselves, but people's reaction to them. They're, they're always excited about declaring who won the debate. <laughs> Nobody won. Were you even watching the same thing I was? That wasn't a debate. They weren't even talking about the same things. There was no thesis and supporting points. It was a gripe and blame session full of boasting. But that's it, isn't it? Whoever can blame the other person the most, whoever can boast about their own acumen the best, that's who won. This really isn't new to humanity. It's something we've been doing for a while. James is addressing something similar in his time and elsewhere in the book. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called James also admonished his readers to not show partiality to the rich. 
See, the rich had a a higher social ranking than most of James' readers. And it's in this that in part that, that he, he advises that not many should become teachers because as orators, they held a social importance. But there was a temptation too to bless and curse. Prestige and power often lead to defaming others and boasting of oneself. See, in their culture in that time, if, if someone was presented with an opportunity to increase their social status, their class, you jumped on it no matter what because most never get the chance, ever. And there's a reason too that James started his letter with count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials. See, there was a famine in Palestine around the same time that James' letter was being produced. And it's quite possible that several, even in his own church, not to mention those he was writing to, would have been dispersed from Rome when Claudius expelled all the Jews out of there. We can actually read that in Acts 18. Christians were not yet being martyred, but they were under intense economic oppression because of the cultural systems of the day. And the church, the church was buckling under the pressure. There's two ways people could respond. Was either to be refined towards unity, or as Douglas Moo puts it, Compromise with the world and split apart into bickering factions. Who is wise? Better yet, how does someone become wise? Education? A degree? <laughs> I hope so. I've been putting off getting one for 20 years, so I'm, I'm hoping to finally wisen up. But do we gain wisdom through philosophy? Epistemology? Can one really learn anything For there's nothing new under the sun and we're all just toiling in a meaningless existence. Are we evolving into higher beings so that we transcend this earthly prison? How about through religion? Memorizing scripture. But even James states to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So does retention of facts, does that grant us wisdom? So how do we gain wisdom? What is required of us to acquire this skill in life? These are questions that James did not write, but he was asking. Rather, it's assumed that in connection with the assumption that gaining wisdom is favorable, the ideologies of both Jews and Greeks of the time, they held wisdom in high regard. So when James asked who is wise among you, His readers would have pondered that question with a whole subset of preconceived notions, pre-understandings, prejudices, presumptions, and many other pre-uses. Not the car. We do the same, do we not? We who, who we view as wise is often directly tied to how they got there. And we start to think about, you know, about who it is wise and who isn't. And there's a distinction drawn. And if we're not careful about what we call wisdom, we'll end up making distinctions among ourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. As we read in James 2.4. So what if being wise isn't something you can achieve? What if it isn't something that we should even pursue? Does that question sound heretical? There's a few verses we can read through. Proverbs, and these should be up on the screen for you. Proverbs 14, 6. 
A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge comes easy for a man of understanding. And 1 Corinthians 1.22, for Jews demand signs and Greek seek wisdom. And in Ecclesiastes 1.12 through 18, we can read this. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly." I perceive that this also is but striving after when, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, wait, though. In the beginning of James chapter 1, he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask for it. I guess asking is a little different than pursuing, isn't it? Chasing after, striving for, dedicated to the pursuit of? No. Just ask and God will give it to you. Generously. But Proverbs is clear that wisdom is a good thing. And if James is the Proverbs of the New Testament, then it would stand to reason that he thinks wisdom is a good thing too. And in fact, he does. God gives it when we asked. James believes that all good and perfect things come down from the Father of lights, and his mention of wisdom coming from above connects that to these good gifts. So that's James' view of wisdom. But what about our culture? How does our culture view wisdom? Well, to answer that question, I have turned to the most reliable source that I can think of, Facebook. (laughs) You believe this? A discussion about urinating on someone's pants passes for wisdom these days. It's unbelievable. But then again, so does dismissing the deaths of some people because others have died under different circumstances. All death is tragic. Everything surrounding death is tragic. And it is a big deal and it should be taken seriously. The very point of the gospel was to disarm and destroy death to correct and reverse its curse, but to treat death apathetically, that's not wisdom. Pointing out that other viruses kill people so COVID's no big deal isn't wisdom. Pointing out that a black man was killed by cops isn't a big deal because cops have killed other people, that's not wisdom. Publicly defaming others as not loving their neighbors because they won't wear a mask isn't wisdom. But these are the the debates of the wise in our day. Look, I get it. I'm just as guilty. Someone would post about a, a celebrity who has died and how sad it is. And I think to myself, who cares? They made a living out of lying people and pretending to be someone that they're not. But then I get a check in my spirit. I died for them too. Yes, Lord. Yes, you did. As should I. 
Who is wise among us? That can be a tough question to answer. But James asks so we would start thinking about what wisdom is. So let's look at what James teaches on wisdom. First, wisdom is not taken. Now we need to understand that there were cultural tensions that were leading to a revolt in James' time. There were systems of economic oppression. And then you throw on top of that a famine. And as I mentioned earlier that the Jews were expelled from Rome, but when they were allowed to come back in, many had their possessions and their land sold out from under them. So even those that had prestige and power and wealth, they returned with none of it. So imagine, if you will, a a people steeped in a tradition of knowing that their God is the one true God and that he has promised them land and he has promised their forefathers to be over many nations. It's no wonder there was a revolt. And in AD 70, the Roman Empire, they came in and they destroyed the temple. But this tension in the culture, it wasn't just in the culture. It was in the church. Specifically between the Greek Christians and the Jewish Christians. The Jews resented the Greek status and the Greeks resented the Jewish's customs. And much of the the circumcision faction was fueled by this tension. And this problem wasn't just in Rome either. John admonished the believers to love one another. Paul taught on unity to the Ephesians. He instructed those in Galatia that there is neither Jew nor Greek. Peter admonished the believers to have unity of mind, or as Paul wrote to Philippi, be of one mind. These tensions and divisions were widespread. And it wasn't because, you know, the Jews, they like to to worship with the shofar, and the Greeks like music better with the tympanum. No, it's because life was hard. And many were struggling to just live. That's why in Acts 2 church, it's such an amazing thing that they they were not in need and they were all caring for one another. Let's be honest. Most of us here, we don't know what it's like to live in a hopeless financial state of not being able to provide, even though we're fully capable and fully willing. Many of us in the U.S., we don't know what that type of oppression feels like and what it does to one's psyche. Modern psychology would call it trauma. And that's what the readers of James lived in day in and day out, the trauma of existence. Imagine all of us in here hungry and desperate for change. And we can remember how just 15 years ago, we were all able to support each other and everything was good, but now it all seems hopeless and destitute. And then through those doors comes someone wealthy. And we think this could be our hope. He could help us. But James says, no, he's not your hope. Don't treat him better than you treat others because you'll think you'll get something from him. That's earthly wisdom, conniving. It may be cunning, it may be smart, but it's not wisdom from above. You know what I love about the book of James? Is that he randomly jumps onto something else and and then backpedals into this undercurrent of what he's getting across. And also there's a connection to creation theology. See what I'm doing here? So using our intellect, skill sets, and personality to acquire for ourselves is earthly, unspiritual, 
demonic. Whoa, demonic? Okay, James, the just, I think you just went too far. Demonic, whoo. Did he? Let me tell you a story about a young couple who fell in love in a garden. It didn't end well. So creation theology, it permeates the Old Testament. And since James would most likely have received the same education in the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus, his brother, did, Jesus who quoted from the beginning of Genesis, James's worldview would have been saturated with creation theology. And it's evident in how he describes things, such as this dual uh, presentation of wisdom, like two trees. In verse 16, we read that with jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. The creation account is a move from disorder and chaos to peace. Each time God declared something was good is when part of the chaos was brought to peace. In the beginning, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God created light and saw that it was good. But see, then there's a day when the heavens are made, but God doesn't call that good. It's only when dry land appears to give order and shape to the waters that God calls it good. And each time that God creates in these threefold areas of creation, water, sky, and land, to either fill the void or to set up a ruler to bring order, God declares it then good. And when God created humanity to be in his image, and he gave them dominion over all the creatures that swim, fly, and walk, he then said it's very good. Peace. Shalom. And God rested. But then chaos erupted. His rulers chose to take wisdom into their own hands and to be the determinants of what is right and wrong. Taking from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and bad, they brought about death, chaos, the anti-creation. What has resulted from this is every vile practice. The knowledge, the wisdom that was gained, it came about through demonic means as the serpent was cunning as well. So when we use our intellect, our skill sets and personality to acquire for ourselves, it is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. And I don't mean just acquiring this stuff. We can acquire recognition. We can acquire purpose, even a sense of mission. But if it's at the expense of others or it does not align with loving God and loving people, then it is a wisdom that is taken, not a wisdom that is given. Just as the fruit that leads to death was taken. So if, if there's someone that disagrees with me about how something should be done, and it comes about that that's the way things have to happen, and I gloat in that, I'm boasting that I've acquired my way and I've exercised demonic wisdom. Even if this has something to do with church. Let's say this, this is gonna be a fictitious example. Bear with me. But let's say that uh, for a while we had, to, we had the pulpit down, on the, on, down there on the ground and I hated it. 
You know, I, it's just, it's terrible. It's not the place for it. There, it's just out there in the middle of nowhere. It's like in, in a sea of emptiness. And it's just not what it should be. It should be up on the stage. Pastor Tony should be behind the pulpit, delivering the word of God from on high. And that's how things should be. But then we had, you know, social distancing and we had to create more space and the chairs had to move forward. So the pulpit had to come back up here. Yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> that's not wisdom. That's earthly. It's unspiritual. Demonic. As it is with all personal and partisan pursuits. James also taught that true religion is to care for others in distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How much of our culture here in the U.S. is overwhelmed with the zeal of factional politics? And how many times are we in the church stained with the same zeal? The word translated jealousy is also translated zeal. Both translations can be either good or bad, depending on the context, for even God is jealous or zealous when we are not unified by his spirit. He has made us to not be alone. And as separate parts combined to make a whole, we reflect the name of God in unity. And God is zealous for things concerning the holiness of his name. But when bitter, undrinkable jealousy is offered up, and we become concerned with our own way and our own ideas or those that agree with us, when we in the church become divided and factional, we are behaving falsely to the truth that we're created in God's image, falsely to the truth that Christ died for us all. Christ became the humanity we rejected at the tree. We consistently, as humanity, choose self over others, but Jesus chose all over his own rights as the word of God, origin, the life giver, the one and only son of God. He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or something to pursue or acquire. No, he became like a servant. And being in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a tree. But as the word of God, origin, the life giver, he had the power to take his life back up again. And so indeed he rose to life and he was exalted and he was given the name because Jesus is God and in him is life. And the choice is ever before humanity. Do you choose life or do you choose death? Do you choose the way of the world or do you choose the way of the cross? For holding on to life in this world is death, but dying to the world is life in Christ Jesus. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? That trying to embrace life is choosing death, while choosing to die to self is in fact choosing life. That's not a wisdom that this world can make sense of. Because this world only understands taking. Wisdom from above isn't taken, it's given. We simply ask for it. You know, there's times it's difficult for me to ask. I'd rather rely on myself to get something accomplished. You know, my brother Mike Vernon's gonna be preaching next week on what that looks like when that happens. 
And I'm looking forward to, uh, to James working me over on that topic as well. But back to wisdom, it isn't taken. Secondly, wisdom is not earned, but it does work. In verse 13, we see the beginnings of wisdom in James. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. This is the same meekness expressed in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. James does us a great service here, not only providing instruction through God's word, but also giving us an example of what it looks like to apply the teaching of Jesus to current cultural contexts. James applies Jesus' teaching on gentleness, humility, and submission to the divisive and factional views of his time. And he does so by tying it to the accepted idea of wisdom. If you think you're wise, then be wise through meekness. Jesus was the ultimate example of this. When the enemy came to him in the garden, he was able to make them bow with one word, but he didn't fight. He went peacefully. When given the chance to argue back at his accusers in front of Pontius, asking him if he was a king, Jesus said, those are your words. That's your perception. My kingdom is not of this world, and this world does not understand its strength, power under control. The capability to take, which is set aside by the unwavering commitment not to. Even Imperial Rome lost sight of the classical Greeks' concept of meekness. It represented to them a noble-minded man who remained meek in the face of insults, judges who were lenient, and a king who was kind. Humanity has over and over sought self-promotion, but Jesus calls us to be a different kind of human. And it's in meekness that we show our wisdom. Adam and Eve did not earn the garden, but they were given life until they took of the wrong fruit in which lies the seed of corruption, darkness, and every vile practice. But James says to practice good conduct. He's relating wisdom to how faith without deeds is dead. Just as you cannot separate faith and works, there's no lip service when it comes to faith. Wisdom, likewise, must be lived out. But meekness is not being quiet. It's being gentle. It's not passivity. It's showing others respect and dignity. It's actively denying self so that others come first. I recently interviewed a a candidate for one of the janitorial positions at my work, and I explain how the job isn't just doing janitorial work since our organization promotes the inclusion of those with disabilities in the labor force. It also involves a fair amount of training others and a perspective of helping someone else to be successful. The response the applicant had was spot on. They stated that as a parent, they have learned that much of life is about putting others' needs ahead of their own. That, my friends is meekness in action. As Tony mentioned, James is all about action, applying the teaching of Jesus to every day. And children, they do, they teach us, right? They force us to be others-focused. As do spouses and friends, relationships in general, really. So as many of you know, my wife has recently had surgery. Um, She's been uh, on the mend for several weeks now, and she's had to take it extremely easy. 
And it's, it's required her to ask uh, the, the kids and myself to do things for her. And at times that's been a struggle for her because she usually does everything. <laughs> But she'll ask me to do something, and a lot of times it's immediately followed with, is that okay? Is, am I asking too much? And I tell her, no, it's my job. It's what I'm called to do. I'm called to live sacrificially. Christ calls me to go pick up fingernail tips at the dollar store. <laughs> it's my purpose. But husbands, it helps. It helps confessing that. It helps saying that out loud because I'm all too familiar with the pressure of time constraints and responsibilities and workloads that pile up and I begin to feel overwhelmed. And when one more thing's put on top, Christ calls me to love and live in meekness. Saying it out loud, it helps. It helps take my thoughts captive for Christ. It helps me focus on the wisdom of Christ rather than the wisdom claiming that my time's important. It helps to develop skills in righteousness. John MacArthur, I, I got a, a book of his once. We did it in a small group a long time ago, and, and this is what he had to say in it. He said, The biggest fool was the one who knew truth and failed to apply it to the Jews. Wisdom meant skill in living righteously. As it is with any skill, the more it's used and refined, the better you'll get at it. Conversely, if, if you feel a pull to practice unspiritual wisdom, then whatever is pulling you in that direction is something that needs to be remediated from your life. And it needs to be replaced with, with things that reprove, correct, and train in righteousness. Maybe during 2020, you've closed off a bit and not only become socially distant, but spiritually distant from your small group, the church, your time to let scripture speak into your life. Now more than ever, we as the body of Christ need to be diligently and collectively walking in Christ. We need to encourage one another, pray for one another, Hold one another accountable. We need to love one another and bear each other's burdens. We also need to welcome and to comfort and to forgive. These are all things that Christ calls us to do. These are all things that Christ calls us to be as his church. There's work to do, Christian. Wisdom is not earned, but it does work. Thirdly, wisdom is peacemaking. Through and through, it is pure, not double-natured. Often the idea of purity is referenced in relation to sexual activities, but since James doesn't broach that topic in his letter, it's hard to imagine that's what he's referring to here. But there's also a sense of, of moral faultlessness tied to purity. And James does make mention on several occasions the idea of not having a double mind or being double-natured. And within the context of these few verses, we can readily see this dual perspective of wisdom from above and wisdom from below. So first and foremost, James is saying that wisdom from above is all about being from above, 
a good gift of God. It does not ebb and flow from earthly wisdom to godly wisdom and earthly wisdom, but the wisdom from above is first pure through and through. It is and establishes moral faultlessness. Now we can appreciate the idea of pure being something which is just one thing, right? Pure gold, pure joy. I do find it immensely satisfying to watch metal melt. It's, it's, it's not, it's fun to me. I don't know why the color of it, the heat of it, the tools that they use when they take the dross off the top. And then what's left is, you know, a pure metal. We can understand that. It's also, it's also nice to be able to watch children laugh and play and the pure joy they have in the excitement of the moment to live vicariously through that. But we also use that term, right, to describe things as pure evil. This idea doesn't jive with James. He isn't saying that our wisdom can be either good at times or bad at times. It just needs to be completely one or the other when that happens. That's far from what he's saying. Yes, he believes in the solidarity of purpose, but the purposes must be in line with God, morally faultless, through and through, good to the end, wisdom is pure. But it also doesn't mean that, that it, there's this balance between these two extremes. See, Plato and Aristotle, they had a belief in what's called the golden mean. They saw meekness even as the happy median point between passion and apathy. This isn't what James means by pure either. It isn't the comfortable and compromised middle ground as if we're comparing life in the fast lane and wisdom is life in the other lane. Now, I heard a lot of people say early on, uh, you know, a couple weeks after the, the pandemic began, the saying that it's really helping us to, to slow down and become more balanced. This isn't the wisdom that James has in mind. As if there's three lanes on the road. One, people are driving it fast and in a hurry to get nowhere. The other lane, there's, there's slow and there, you know, there's not a care in the world. And then there's the other lane where you know, we're better balanced between these two. We're determined and purposeful, but we're also, you know, we're taking the time to enjoy and cherish things that matter. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Safe. No, James says, stop, pull over, look off in the distance. You're on the wrong road. If there's anything to learn from this pandemic, it should be that our sense of security is misplaced. We've grown accustomed to our comforts and how we like to do things. We've taken for granted the stability of our communities. We've been shown that our idea of peace is based on earthly systems and modes of operation. Here in the U.S., we've been breathing the air of comfort and control for years. I listened to a podcast recently where the speaker talked on how we've been able to order things with the click of the button. And we're connoisseurs of coffee, chocolate, cupcakes. It's life on our terms. He then stated that when we have an economy that can support specialty stores that only sell cupcakes, we've got a comfy culture. But he said that kind of world, it does not cause people to turn to God. It doesn't cultivate deep things like faith, hope, and love not when we're the masters of our own happiness. Ooh, 
That's a punch in the gut, isn't it? He also talked about the pandemic revealing things in our own hearts. And it has mine. It revealed a misplaced sense of urgency. That if I don't do something, if I don't, if I don't go and make something happen, nothing good is going to happen. And God says to me, really? So now you're the father of good gifts, huh? No. But I still feel a sense of urgency. But maybe it's a, it better could describe as a conviction to not be actionless. James is clear. It isn't action for action's sake. Wisdom is peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. We are to plant peace, to reap peace. Today, I know I've kind of been all over the place and there's a lot packed into this small passage because there's some weighty concepts being expressed here. But James' message is clear. Wisdom that leads to righteousness is done through living peacefully with others. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Are you a peacemaker? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they are called sons of God. Pursuing wisdom is folly, but pursuing peace is wisdom. The world James and his readers lived in was a tumultuous one. And guess what? Now we've come to see our world as tumultuous. So do we need to fix this? Do we need more people to stand up and declare what is right? Do we need more people to rise up and fight for the people? Do we need more people to make their opinions and perspectives known on Facebook? Or do we need more people to walk in meekness of wisdom, pursuing peace and pointing people to the cross of Christ? People have been shaken. And people have been questioning the security of freedoms and the safety of our population. The time is now to love and lead people to the one that offers true freedom and defies death. Without Christ, there is no peace. Are you planting the peace of the gospel? I'll be honest, I used to discount the need for practicing evangelism personally because I knew I'm gifted in other areas of the Christian walk. And anytime I heard people tell stories of, uh, you know, and, and explain how, how the, the need has to happen, it was always with bad logic. But I'm growing in conviction that making and maturing disciples is a must. And if I'm prioritizing things in life over that, then I am again not living in wisdom, am I? I'm greatly encouraged by my fellow elder Mike, who tells stories of how he seeks to work in Christ and the gospel into his conversations at work. What James is saying is this. 
if we are full of mercy and good fruits and our lives are marked by being impartial and sincere, then we're going to set aside our need for comfort and the tasks that distract us from being servants of Christ so we can instead look for ways to plant peace into the lives of others. This has possibly been one of the most relevant passages to the church today that I have ever studied. The historical context almost exactly matches what the church is facing today. The only difference is the cause for the turmoil. For them, it was financial instability that separated the rich and powerful from the poor and marginalized, which was tied into their political structure of the day. For us today, it's a divide between those who are passionate about health and safety and those who are passionate about freedom and protection. And both are tied to our political systems. There's arguments, defamation of one another, and the culture is brimming with revolt. And it's getting into the church. James is saying that neither of these sides is the path to the righteousness, but those that live humble, gentleness, and mercy, pursuing peace, are those that have the wisdom of God. Let us go from here and pursue peace. Pray with me. Father of all mercy, we are but your humble servants. And it is only by your grace and your forgiveness that we even have a way to come to you. I admit this world is crazy, confusing, and scary at times. And you're right. We chose it. It's our own fault. God, we need you. And we thank you that you are present and you are here. And Lord, you have called us to you. You have called us to follow you. And we want to. Help us to do so. Help us to learn from you and to live as you lived. So I ask that you fill us with your spirit that as we continue on through this this book of James, this journey, that you speak to our hearts. Realign our will with the will of, of scripture, with your will your word for you are worthy of everything we can give 
by your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.